From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On this Memorial Day, stories of Coloradans who've served in extraordinary ways. 99-year-old David Howie of Denver recalls surviving what he now considers his lucky birthday. And this shell had hit the ground and gone down 12 feet underneath me and burst. Then, the role Colorado women played fighting World War II. Rosie the Riveter is just part of the picture, and these women weren't always welcome. Plus, remembering a Colorado Marine who blazed a trail with the military's war dog program. The carefully chosen canines receive basic and specialized training, which toughens and prepares them for definite assignments under fire. And a submariner who didn't get the message right away that World War II was over. Colorado Public Radio is able to bring you what you need in a news and music service because of generous financial support from members. A special thank you to everyone who gave during the recent membership drive. Together, you strengthened the financial backbone of CPR and through your support, helped plant trees around the state. Thank you for your gift and thank you for making an extra impact in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. On this Memorial Day, stories of service that stand out. An early trainer of Defense Department dogs, a World War II submariner, and women who served in the Second World War but weren't always welcome. We'll begin with 99-year-old David Howie of Denver. Last fall, he shared with us what happened on his 23rd birthday. He describes it as the scary birthday he will never forget. It was 1944, the height of World War II. Howie was on the front lines in Italy when his unit ran into trouble. We got in position and the Germans were on three hills in front of us and to the left and the right. And they knew we were there and they started sending a lot of artillery fire. Howie and his fellow soldiers were hunkered down in their foxholes. All of a sudden, my foxhole just raised up in the air and lowered, and I couldn't tell what had happened because shells were landing all around me. The ground was shaken. The onslaught continued for hours. When it finally let up, David Howey climbed out to see what had happened. He found a huge shell that had lodged below him with a delayed fuse. And this shell had hit the ground and gone down 12 feet underneath me and burst. It's 365 pounds of steel and TNT. And it had gone off underneath me. It cracked the ground and the water that it collected in my foxhole was already draining into the big hole that this had made underneath my foxhole. After seeing how close he'd come to being blown up, Howie used the angle of the shell to calculate where it had been fired from. Then he went to an intelligence officer who had a map. Together, they traced the shell back to a huge German cannon kept in a cave, and with the help of the Tuskegee Airmen, took it out of commission. 
and I was the battalion graves registration officer. So I had to go out and collect the dog tags of the men that had been killed and put one dog tag in their mouth and send the other dog tag back to the rear with the body. And uh, I said to the clerk, what's the date today? And he says, today is the 9th of November. And I said, oh, it's my 23rd birthday. He says, I went out and looked. You were pretty lucky today. And I said, yeah. And I got the only self-training foxhole in the entire area. David Howey was honorably discharged, but joined the reserves because he knew another war was on the horizon. And sure enough, in 1951, he was called back to active duty when the Korean War began. He finally retired with the rank of major in 1963. I was in 20 years, 8 months, and 29 days. I said, that's enough. And I retired. And I get a monthly check now, which is very handy. Howie returned to his pre-war career as a printer. He later became a high school teacher. And when it was time for a third retirement, he and his family moved to Denver. He occasionally goes back to schools to tell youngsters stories from World War II. And not just the one about his luckiest birthday. There's also one about dodging a different kind of fire. You had to have all your buttons buttoned at all times. And one day the captain was inspecting the ranks and the soldier ahead of me had a pocket unbuttoned. So the captain grabs it and says, soldier, do you want that button? Yes, sir. And he rips it off the shirt and says, hold out your hand. Here you wanted it. The same scene played out a few days later with another soldier. When the captain asked if he wanted his button, this time that soldier responded in the negative. But the outcome was the same. The captain ripped off the button and threw it on the ground. Eventually, it was Howie's turn. He was unlucky enough to have his pocket unbuttoned. And the captain, of course, stopped in front of him with the question. Do you want that button, soldier? And I answered, right where it is, sir. And he looked at the sergeant and he says, sergeant, that excuse will never be used in this unit again. And he let go of my button. And uh, I dodged the bullet that day. David Howey of Denver, retired U.S. Army major, sharing his memories with us last fall. The attack on Pearl Harbor brought World War II to American soil, and in short order, thousands of Colorado women joined the war effort, enlisting in the military, working in defense plants, and volunteering in all kinds of ways. Army Nurse Corps Lieutenant Leela Allen Morrison was among them, a note that her experiences are graphic. 
She took care of hemorrhaging soldiers in a hospital tent near the front line in Germany, mixing powdered plasma with sterile water. I promised myself I would not show fear because if I had been in their place, I wouldn't have wanted a nurse working on me, giving me IVs and whatnot with a shaky hand. That's a 2014 recording of Morrison made at a senior residence in Windsor, Colorado. She also helped as the Allies liberated the Buchenwald concentration camp. A survivor told her how he evaded death by hiding in a pile of corpses. As he showed her around the camp, she struggled to understand what had happened. This is just all to myself, and I was thinking, that's absolutely a factory of murder. That's the only way I knew to describe it. And I just couldn't understand how one human, I don't care what he looks like, who he is, or where he's from, or what, how could you do that to your worst enemy? Well, a Denver historian weaves Morrison's experiences with scores of others in the book Colorado Women in World War II. I spoke with author Gail Beaton on Pearl Harbor Day last year. You write that four months before Pearl Harbor, a Denver journalist named Mildred McClellan Melville predicted the war was coming to America. She said it would not just be a man's war at the front. It will be a civilian war reaching into every kitchen and nursery. It will be a war not only of bombs, but also of butter. Talk about prescient lines, huh? Exactly. Yes. Well, you know, you would say that women did everything in in a short answer, but I like to think of it as the women doing five different layers. They enlisted in the military. They worked in the defense plants. They, you know, filed thousands and thousands of papers as office personnel. Of course, the physical sustenance of ranchers and farmers and victory gardens, and then all the morale uh, activities that they did on the home front. Very key in winning the war. And so that term war of butter, I I think that it captures the fact that even if you weren't directly volunteering for, for instance, the Defense Department, uh, people saw themselves and women especially as having a role, if that was at home on a ranch, as you say. Definitely. Everyone felt like they had a part in winning this war. And they often said, you know, we just did it. It was something we were required, not required to do, but the nation needed us. Were you surprised in researching this book by some of the roles that women played in World War II? Uh, were, were there learning experiences for you as well as a historian? Oh, there were tons of learning experiences. I mean, I had no idea. First off, the the amount of jobs and the variety of jobs that have to be done, you know, people stuffing oiled, soaked rags down gun turrets to make sure that they stay um, working, or women who are air traffic controllers, uh, watching the planes come in at Stapleton and listening to four different radios at the time, Um, Army and Navy nurses that were air evacuation. This is the first time we have air evacuation in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, So very, I was stunned. I was stunned. It was amazing. Yeah, why don't you think this history is better known? I think we're seeing more of an emphasis on finding the unknown or the hidden 
uh, people in the past, whether it's women or men of color or just women in general. Uh, I think probably the 100th anniversary of the suffrage 19th Amendment has helped bring some of these things to the forefront, as well as the fact that we're losing these veterans um, left and right. You know, they're in their mid to late 90s at this point, men and women. Yeah, I think that's really painful for me, too, as a journalist, to know that we have these Coloradans with direct experiences in World War II. And it feels as if there's a rush to speak with them and to document these stories. And Gail, you made reference to the fact that uh, women were essential to the war effort, including women of color, who thus faced not just sexism, but racism. And I think of the story of Alita Crane of Denver, uh, an African-American in the Women's Army Corps, She attended officer candidate school in Des Moines, and even taking a shower was a challenge. Tell us about that. Yes, Alita and two other um, African-American officer candidates had to live in a private home off the base of Fort Des Moines. And every morning they'd get up, they'd shrug into their big overcoats, uh, military issued, of course, walk across town to the barracks where they would shower before the white officer candidates arose. Um, Olita would say that this was one of the benefits of being a black woman in the WAC because she didn't have to uh, live in a barrack all crammed in with 300 other women. Huh. She didn't have to wait in line. Um, so this was a, kind of a benefit, but obviously one of the very few benefits of being a black woman in a segregated uh, army corps. And it was that, it was segregation that meant separate housing for her. Yes. Yes. And that was really just the tip of the iceberg when it came to racism that Crane faced during both her military and non-military work during the war. What else did she have to deal with? Well, before she enlisted in the WAC, she was an uh, employee at the Denver Ordnance Plant, and she was originally hired in one of the three positions that women did there, black women did, and that would be restrooms, cafeteria, or the lead shop, which, of course, is dangerous. It wasn't until later that the plant opened it up to black women to be able to work on the production line and as inspectors. So she was discriminated there also. They also, at the Denver Ordnance Plant, didn't have their own... Um, restroom in their particular building. So they had to go across the plant in order to use the facilities. And then when she was in the military, they had uh, segregated pools. Uh, Well, not segregated, but they had the pools where the white women swam on Mondays. And then when Olita brought her unit in to use the pool. They often told them, oh no, the time has been changed. You're not swimming this week or something like that. Hmm. If they did end up swimming, then um, the authorities made sure that the pool was cleaned or decontaminated, as they said, after the black women swam. You made reference to the lead shop, and I'm not certain what that is. Is that where they would make bullets or? Yes. um, Bullet contain lead and so the women had to work with the lead and lead is toxic so uh, the women's blood levels were tested every three weeks if the level was too high they were removed from the lead shop and reassigned restroom or cafeteria duty which of course is much lower pay it's not a production wage Hmm. Um, then if their lead levels were fine they were put back under the lead shop so originally at the plant there was only black women in the restrooms and the cafeterias and the lead shop Um, until there was a threat of a lawsuit against Remington Arms, who ran the plant. 
Why did Olita Crane want to join the military? I mean, especially when you hear the circumstances that she faced. Oh, she saw an advertisement uh, that said, join the army band and help win the war. So she thought, this is great. I'm a saxophone and cornet player. What could be better than joining the army and getting to play my musical instrument? Well, of course, once she joined, she found out that the WAC band was not for uh, African-American soldiers. It was simply for uh, Anglo women. Later, they did establish a fifth um, band, and that was uh, comprised of African-Americans. But by then, Alita had moved on her way with officer candidate school. You made reference to WAC, so Women's Army Corps, and anyone associated with the military knows that there are just a ton of acronyms. And that was true as well for women's service. So many acronyms applying to various uh, organizations within the military that women served in. What were some of the others? Well, you had the WAVES. That would be the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. That's the um, Navy, obviously. Then the Coast Guard was SPAR which stands for Semper Paratus, Always Ready. That's the motto of the Coast Guard. You also had, uh, of course, the ANC, the Army Nurse Corps, and the NNC, the Navy Nurse Corps. But you also had um, the Marines were the last to open up the doors to women. And the Commandant said they will simply be Marines. They will not have any cute little nickname. Some people wanted to call them Glam Marines or Submarines. Um, But... The men, the male Marines, did come up with an acronym for these women reservists, and they called them BAMs, B-A-M's, which stood for Broad-Assed Marines. Huh. Some of it's awfully mean-spirited. Submarines. I mean, I get that it's a reference, of course, to the, to the vessels, but it also is a sense of being less than. Yes. Uh-huh. There were women who served as pilots during the war, World War II, known as uh, WASPs, Women Air Force Service Pilots. Uh, Why don't we hear what you wrote about WASP Peggy Moynihan of Montrose, Colorado. She had just performed her pre-flight safety checks on a recently repaired airplane. Satisfied that she and the BT-13 Volte trainer were ready to test its repairs, she taxied down the runway. On her climb over Bainbridge, Georgia, the plane flipped into a spin. Soon, she was going down faster than she had gone up. Summoning the good Lord upstairs, she popped the stick. Nothing. She popped it a second time. Again, nothing. Still careening toward the earth, she popped it a third time. Finally, she pulled out of the spin. Finding a safe place, Moynihan held the plane steady as she landed. Unbuckling her harness, she jumped out and began inspecting the basic trainer. Realizing that the airfoils were not receiving the correct airflow, she ran her hand along the plane. Bubblegum. A huge wad was stuck on the wing. (sighs) Removing her gloves, she pried it off. Refusing to dwell on how and why the gum had come to be on the aircraft, Moynihan lifted off and completed the test flight. Without its added decoration, the Volte flew fine. Bubblegum. I mean, in the context that we've been speaking, it makes me think if someone did that on purpose. But do you you have a sense if that's true? Yes, I do. Uh, There were instances of mechanics sabotaging the planes. Uh, Fortunately, it wasn't many instances, but there was one particular woman who died, and Jacqueline Cochran, the director of the program, it was later reported that she found that there was sugar in the gasoline tank, um, which of course would, you know, not allow the plane to fly properly. Because 
it was women at the helm? Yes. Gosh. Um, you know, the, the women pilots are really going into a very um, manly male area, uh, much more so than, you know, being a clerk or driving the, the motor vehicles around base or something like that. Um, that, I think, was a threat to, to some people. So, uh, Becky Moynihan of Montrose was actually a test pilot. Yes, and is that a role that you knew going into this project that women had played? I knew that they had flown. I wasn't sure of all their different roles. Uh, the WASP, who went through the same training as male pilots, flew every type of military aircraft during World War II. So they were test pilots, but they also ferried airplanes. They transported officials from one end of the country to another. And one of the more interesting things they did, uh, and dangerous, was being... Uh, towing targets for gunnery practice. So they would drag a pull, a large canvas banner, like you would see, you know, flying over Mile High Stadium, you know, will you bury me sort of thing. Huh. But this one, um, as they flew over, the men practicing their gunnery skills would be shooting at this airplane. And when it came down, they would inspect the canvas and the ammunition had, um, was marked with paint like blue and yellow and pink and green and this way they could tell where the um, shots had been fired and of course sometimes they found that the plane itself had been hit so I, I always find it amazing that you'd be up there in this airplane and you know you'd hear something here hit your airplane um, must have been amazing yeah I can tell in writing this you've you've tried to place yourselves in their shoes and in their controls uh, Gail, thanks so much for being with us. We're really grateful for your time. Thank you. Historian Gail Beaton has written Colorado Women in World War II. We spoke this past Pearl Harbor Day. A memory now of my own. The first time I saw the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, I was in high school in Washington for a Model United Nations conference. It had snowed. We were walking across a monochromatic blanket of white. Then the black granite appeared. I was overcome. The contrast left me breathless. It's a feeling I'll never forget and never really experienced again until I heard a song. On public radio, as a matter of fact, my first station, KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. They played There's a Wall in Washington by Iris DeMent. Let's listen and be back in the next half hour on Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In August 2019, a Colorado Springs man watched police officers shoot his 19-year-old cousin. When they started shooting, I kind of like froze. From that moment on, he had one goal, to change policing. Episode 2 of Systemic from Colorado Public Radio, available free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. On this Memorial Day, let's remember Marine Private First Class Homer Finley of Longmont. He died in August at age 95. 
Finley was part of the Marines' war dog platoon during World War II. The carefully chosen canines receive basic and specialized training, which toughens and prepares them for definite assignments under fire. Dogs of many breeds rally to the colors. Finley handled messenger dogs. We spoke in November 2019. Homer, thank you for having us in your home. You're welcome. You worked with what was called a war dog platoon. What were the dogs trained to do? Number one, we were the first Marine war dog platoon to be formed in World War II. And we had two types of dogs. We had what we call messenger dogs, and the rest of the platoon was made up of Doberman pinchers, and they were trained for scouting and attack work. Tell me what the messenger dogs did. I mean, their name is fairly straightforward, and what kinds of dogs they were. We had three messengers. There was Thor, Jack, and Caesar, and each dog had two handlers. And the idea of the messenger dogs, they wore special collars where we could put messages in the collars, and usually one handler would stay in the command post. The other handler would go out with a patrol. Vital information is hastily written out for dispatch to the outpost position to the rear. An emergency ammunition supply is urgently needed if the patrol is to hold out. And instead of a soldier runner, the messenger dog will do the job. His speed and size make him a tough target. And there's no halt or backward glance until he comes to the ammunition supply point. Of course, they also start shooting at our dogs. (laughs) And Caesar was our best messenger dog. Tell me about Caesar. I want to know all about him. Well, he was just easily trained. He was very intelligent. And actually, there's a memorial of Caesar in some museum someplace. Do you think a dog like Caesar was aware of the risks? Do you sense that the dogs knew that the work was dangerous? Well, we trained them to ignore gunfire because in combat, it's a lot of big, noisy shooting and yelling, and they did their duties beautifully. He asks for no reward. A pat on the back, any little acknowledgement by his master are sufficient. The whole war dog ideal was successful, and today it still goes on in big time. The dogs no doubt saved lives. Tell me about that. Our dogs were trained to alert the handler whenever there was a foreign, another person or whatever. So they, we had much fewer ambushes. And, you know, we trained the dogs to attack on command, and uh, somebody had to be a spook and put the padded clothes on to agitate the dogs. Part of our training, sometimes we'd take the dog out and hide And then the rest of the guys would come along with the other dogs trying to find. And uh, I could fall asleep under a bush or something, and my dog would let me know when anybody came near. His mission a success? The dog's complete happiness is expressed in his every movement. A portrait of service, obedience, and devotion to the job. Especially at night in a foxhole, a dog's a pretty nice companion. Because if anybody starts stirring around, they're going to know it. And when you go into combat, you're sleeping with them, and you're living with them, and you're feeding them, and you really fall in love with your dog. And uh, it was sad 
I think Caesar was the first one to get wounded. He finished his message run, even though he had been shot. And uh, then they brought him in to an aid station on a stretcher, and uh, he revived and did more. In fact, I think he went on beyond Bougainville. Bougainville, this is an island east of Papua New Guinea, and this was a, a U.S. invasion of that island. What became of the dogs after the war? Well, we were more or less an experimental unit, but we learned that people were volunteering their dogs. The idea that if the dog survived the war and was used, they would be first detrained, and then the owner, original owner could have them back if they wanted them. Of course, some of the dogs could not be detrained. And I think Camp Lejeune was where they did most of that type of training. And I took a trip to the war dog area, you know, the training area, and I saw one of my dogs in one of the cages. And I, I made a comment to the guy that was showing me around. Said, There's a dog I had over on Bougainville. And he said, well, he's pretty vicious, so you better be careful. Don't get too close to him. And I said, well, Jack is going to remember me, I know. So and this kind of tears me up when I think about it. But uh, I did step into the, the run, through the gate, into the run where the dog was. He knew me right away, put his paws up on my shoulder and started licking my face. And it was just like a family reunion, you know. Homer Finley of Longmont, speaking with me in November 2019. He was part of the Marines' War Dog Platoon during World War II. Finley died last August at age 95. Most Allied soldiers knew World War II was coming to an end by July 26, 1945. America waited out World War II's last tense hours. At the White House, President Truman, State Secretary Burns, and Cordell Hall stood by for the momentous surrender message from the Japanese. But the message didn't reach Roy Christensen until later. He was aboard the USS Raton, a Navy submarine stationed in the Pacific. I met the now 96-year-old veteran at his apartment in Centennial. This was a few years ago. Christensen sat in his leather chair and took us back to the 1940s, explaining why he and his shipmates were among the last to know the war had ended. We were uh, on patrol in the Philippine Sea off the Philippines, and uh, we were still hunting enemy ships. But when... uh, the flimsy came into our, our boat. Uh, now, what's first, a flimsy? Well, a flimsy is a, 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 when we surfaced any messages that were to go to the, to the ship, they would come through in, in code in about one sentence, and then you had to decode it. And these would only come if you were at the surface of the water. Right, yeah. So we, really didn't, we were on our way into Subic Bay for a refitting. 
imagine was about two or three days. We had an idea something was going on, but we really didn't know anything to celebrate that the, the Japanese had surrendered. My goodness, you didn't get the message until you had come ashore. Uh, and there you were patrolling the seas for days after the war had ended. What, what, what if you had found a ship? I can't answer that. I really don't know. That was, uh, uh, luckily it didn't happen. But uh, in August, uh, we had sunk three ships. Tell me about one of those occasions. What was it like? You had a submarine with torpedoes, correct? Yes. One incident that had happened, we were, we'd received a flimsy to uh, search out a Japanese submarine because it had a German scientist and an assistant on board, and that was the number one priority, find that submarine and sink it. And the USS Lapan was in that same territory, thought that we were the Japanese submarine, and fired two torpedoes at us. And luckily, the torpedoes hit us and glanced off, and one of them went out a couple of hundred yards and then exploded. I believe this was the only occasion of friendly fire of one American sub to another one. That's correct, and that still stands. And luckily, at that time, we had some angels riding with us because uh, those torpedoes didn't explode. But uh, we were all sworn to secrecy at that time. And uh, when we got back into port, we were told that we either hit an old mine or we hit a, a palm tree that was floating around in the, in the Pacific. And <laughs> I always kind of laughed about that. I never heard of a palm tree exploding. <laughs> Essentially to save face for the United States Navy, I suppose. That's exactly correct. There was uh, a lot of covering uh, people's... Uh, uh, Heinies. Uh, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> right. I didn't want to say that, but that's about what it was. Did you ever find that ship with the German scientist aboard? No, we didn't. You got to remember that in World War II, uh, all the kids that volunteered to get into the Navy about 50% of them were doing it because they were, they were beating the draft. We were all kids, and we were all looking for excitement and thrills, and, and I'll certainly tell you that's where we got them. <laughs> I feel like my only experience with a submarine is through movies. And I think I went on the submarine ride at Disneyland as a kid. I'd like a real account of what it was like to be in a sub. I mean, how, how far deep would you be? Well, to begin with, in the submarine service, uh, you had to be a volunteer to even get into it. There was a lot of screening before you were accepted for schooling to be in the submarine service. And everybody said, well, how does it feel when you submerge? Uh, it just feels like an airplane. When you click your ears to get your, uh, your jaw straightened out, so to speak, it's the same way when you dive. It's no different uh, under sea than it is on top, except for I better not have claustrophobia in, in a submarine. The boat that I was on was 211 feet long, 
and carried 65 crew. When you submerged in those old diesel electric boats, about 20 to 24 hours was your extreme limit of staying submerged. When you dove into the colder water, it made condensation on the ceiling or the overhead of the submarine, and uh, uh, you kind of had a damp feeling. Your, your clothes were damp all the time. Were you ever afraid? Oh, sure. Uh, anybody that said they were in a submarine service and they weren't scared, uh, uh, they're lying to you. Because when a, somebody had you spotted and they started dropping depth charges, the first thing we would do is start counting. And we'd slowly count to 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And if you got past 10, you probably got a good rocking around, but you survived. But if you didn't get to 10, there's, well, we don't have to go into that. We lost 57 submarines during uh, World War II. When you have a war, whether you might call it propaganda or not, but the first thing that is taught to any service people is to kill and hate that enemy. So I don't think any of us had, had a feeling of what we had done causing loss of life. Don't think that ever entered our minds at all. We looked at it that, well, there's one ship that's down and it's a victory for our side of the, of the coin. Now, one time we sunk a Japanese freighter that at the same time had been converted somewhat to a troop carrier. Boy, when that ship was sinking, uh, our captain let us all take a look through the periscope, and we saw hundreds of sailors in the water. And they were so anxious to kill us that the two escorts, they had destroyer escorts, they were dropping depth charges on us. And the concussion of those depth charges going off in the water would just lift these guys in the water up about a foot or two out of the water, not completely out of the water, but it would make them jump up, you know, like the explosion. They were killing their own people. Did you miss the Raton after you left it for the last time? Certainly did. I had came back to the United States uh, aboard three other submarines, and uh, I had some fungus that I developed in my fingernails from them being damp all the time, and uh, I got piggybacked, so to speak, into Oakland to the hospital where I was getting treatment for my fingers in the Raton arrived in San Diego maybe uh, a month or six weeks after that. And uh, Freddie, our cook, he knew that I lived in Pasadena, California, and he called me and said, uh, would I like to bring my mother and father down and tour the boat? And uh, gosh, I, I kind of laughed back at my mother. In those days, women didn't wear slacks, they all wore dresses. And they helped her aboard and told everybody at the hatch to stand back. A lady was coming aboard, and boy, my mother climbed down that stepladder for about 12, 15 feet. Uh, 
She was going to see where her little boy had spent the war. It was great to see all those guys again. And uh, when uh, we got ready to leave the boat, Freddie had a little package wrapped up for my mother in a newspaper, and it was two pounds of butter. And they hadn't had butter for over a year because it was all rationed. And my mother just thought that was a great, great gift. Ninety-six-year-old U.S. Navy veteran Roy Christensen speaking with me in September 2018 in Centennial. Christensen served on the USS Raton, a submarine stationed in the Pacific. When veterans die, they are entitled to a flag presentation and other military honors. But one veteran here, Louis Oliveira, was shocked and angry to learn that at the funeral of a friend's father, a World War II veteran, no one recognized his service. So he brought this sound to burials at Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver. Oliveira founded the Honor Bell Foundation. We spoke about its mission in May 2017. Tell me more about what motivated you to build the Honor Bell. Sure. So about seven years ago, I attended a funeral of a World War II veteran, my best friend's father. And uh, they had requested military honors, in his case, from the Army. And we waited 30 minutes. We waited 45 minutes. Finally, after about an hour, the clergy came up and said, listen, we, we have to move on. We have to get this show on the road. And so this veteran, part of our greatest generation, was buried with no military honors whatsoever. And it just angered me. So I did some research and I found out that there are nearly a thousand veterans that are passing away every day in this country. Just here in Colorado, we have about 50 passing away each day. And uh, I was really kind of shocked about that. And so I thought there must be something I can do to make a difference. And so we started the Honor Bell. We're going to talk more about the bell itself in a moment, but have you heard anecdotally or officially that other service members who died also haven't gotten the military honors they deserve? Uh, Or is what you experience something of an outlier? There has been nationally a drastic uh, decrease in the availability for military honors. And uh, Department of Defense is required uh, by congressional mandate to perform these honors at veterans' funerals. But uh, at the same time, there's been a decrease in funding for this mission. In some places, it's that volunteers have stepped up to do this work. And uh, you might, instead of getting a live bugler, for instance, have a recording played of taps at a funeral. Uh, The Air Force said a few years ago it had to cut back on the extent of its funeral honors because of some mandatory budget cuts. Nevada, Minnesota had to reduce funding for National Guard funerals. I will say that at Fort Logan, where the honor bell tolls most often, a spokesman tells us that every request for military honors at a funeral uh, is fulfilled. Fort Logan is really just an incredible place. And they it is true. They provide honors to every single veteran that is interred there. I want to talk more about the bell itself. So particularly how it was made. It's a thousand pounds, mostly bronze, but you have metals and other artifacts from veterans melted into it. That includes apparently dog tags and a belt buckle from Robert Raymond Abbott Jr.'s Coast Guard uniform. 
He held the highest enlisted rank serving on active duty in the 1960s. His widow, Nancy Abbott, lives in Centennial. She donated these artifacts and said she had an emotional reaction when she first heard the bell toll. Yeah, it just brought chills to me, goosebumps on my arms, and just tears to my eyes because I was so proud of what the Honor Bell Foundation had done and then was really proud of my husband and knowing that he would have been filled with so much pride to know that it was forged for all the veterans who had served their country in any capacity. What are some of the other artifacts, perhaps from different eras, that ended up in this bell, ones that stand out to you? Sure. So as we were pouring the 2,000-degree molten bronze into the mold, we dropped in a Purple Heart medal from a World War II veteran. We dropped in a Medal of Honor challenge coin from a Korean War veteran, Joe Sakato, here from Colorado. We dropped in, as you said, a uh, a set of dog tags from uh, a Vietnam veteran in this case. In all, we dropped in 12 military-related medal pieces, artifacts, badges, buttons, uniform items that families donated to us. And we say that the bell is forged from honor. Uh, And as those melted down and became part of the bell, it's an interesting story. Uh, The bell manufacturer, we had it done at Verdon Company in Cincinnati, Ohio, the oldest bell manufacturer in the U.S. Actually been making bells since 1842. Seven generations of Verdons have been pouring bells, and our bell was poured by Tim Verdon, uh, the great-great-grandson of the founder of the company. And uh, as he finished uh, buffing the bell and getting it all shined up, he came to me and he said, I'm you know, really sorry, but we've never had this happen before. This is the first time we've made a bell with something other than 100% bronze. Oh. And as it cooled, you can see here, he was pointing to the bell, that there are these imperfections, these pock marks in the bell. And I said, well, what caused those? He said, those are these non-bronze material that, that when it cooled, came out to the top of the bell. He said, we can cover those up. You know, we have some putty and you'll never know. I said, don't you dare. That's the whole purpose of the bell. That's its character. That's right. Does it affect the sound of the bell? Not whatsoever. Hmm. Was there any concern about uh, melting like metals into the bell, that that was some kind of dishonor to the metals themselves? Like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if there's even... Sure, no. Uh, whole... In fact, the opposite of that. Okay. Uh, as you heard from Nancy, just a real incredible honor for these families to donate these artifacts and for them to be included. So every time the bell is tolled, some 400 times now, uh, a piece of Colorado's history is sounded throughout... Uh, Fort Logan. What do you sound the bell with? So the bell is a stationary bell. It's not a swinging bell that you Mm. might think of. And so there's a clapper. It's actually a 65-pound ball underneath it on a arm. And we pull a lanyard and it strikes the bell and makes the beautiful sound that you hear. Uh, And it lasted, I think it's like 20 some odd seconds if you strike it just once. I mean, it really has some resonance. Yes, it does. Now we strike the bell. We have a, we call this rendering bell honors. And we do this again at the Uh, at the request of a family for a veteran who has passed. And we toll the bell seven times with seven seconds between each toll. You toll a bell for sorrow. You ring a bell for joy. We can think of wedding bells. They're very high-tuned bells. This bell is tuned to the musical note of A, uh, one of the lowest notes a bell can make. Uh, Musical note of A is the sound of mourning. And so it's a very, almost a haunting sound when you hear it. It's the deliberate ringing of a bell in a slow manner. Uh, to evoke that resonance that you're talking about. And is there symbolism behind seven? Yes. So seven is the number of completion. 
Uh, it goes back to Genesis. It goes back to many reasons. But seven in our case uh, signifies the veteran's life coming to a completion. Hmm. Is this a bell you want told at your own uh, funeral? Well, I hope so. Uh, I will be uh, buried at Fort Logan. And I hope that the sound of the bell is the last thing that's heard at my funeral. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And indeed, the honor bell did toll for Luis Oliveira. He passed away in 2018, a year after we spoke, and was laid to rest at Fort Logan. He was a U.S. Army Ranger and received two Purple Hearts for a combat mission in Panama. Oliveira created the Honor Bell Foundation. Its work continues to ensure veterans have a proper final tribute. Well, thanks for joining us on this Memorial Day. And thanks to the team that makes Colorado Matters possible. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.